This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Rising acuity. Patients coming back are just much more complex, much more fragile, and going to require a lot more teamwork in the hospital and inpatient. Not only have we been exacerbated by fluctuating volumes and inconsistent surges that made planning really difficult, but now as we're really confronted by a workforce challenge and we have these really difficult patients. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. My name is Tori Ritchie. Today, we're going to talk about service line trends. The 2022 Impact of Change National Update has been released. Market forecasts are coming soon. And with our service line webinar series in full swing, I asked some of our experts to join me today while these stories are top of mind. We've got Corey Jones representing cancer in the ortho service line, Josh Aker representing cardiovascular service line, and Kate Zittner representing neuro and spine. Josh, it's no secret that patient focus was perhaps diminished at the height of the pandemic. Are people paying closer attention to their cardiovascular health these days? What's the latest in this space? Yeah, thanks, Tori. As I'm wondering about where that forecast is going to go of what are trends that I've been seeing, and you're asking, are people paying attention to their cardiovascular health during and after COVID? That presumes that they were paying attention to their cardiac health before COVID. We just had a report released from the American Heart Association about their Life Simple 8, which includes sleep as a key factor. When they looked between 2013 and 2018, only one in five Americans had high cardiovascular health, with about 60% in that moderate cardiovascular health and 20% remaining of having low cardiovascular health. That was pre-COVID-19, and as we all saw during that epidemic and the surges, we actually saw fewer patients coming in, fewer patients going into the emergency room, et cetera, getting that qualitative, good follow-up care that include diagnostics and imaging. I didn't see that going into COVID, and I haven't really seen it being improved much going past COVID-19. We really need to, as a CV service line and really as healthcare, figure out where we drop the ball on this and how can we get our patients coming back into healthcare to treat those chronic diseases. That makes sense. And with the level of deferred care that patients experience during the pandemic, is the thought process that's going to lead to the exacerbation of conditions that these patients are going to be more acute and have advanced comorbidities when they finally do return to the healthcare sites? The answer is a resounding yes. It's really what's driving the CV service line. What's driving that inpatient projected forecast of plus 6% over the next 10 years is that rising acuity, that patients coming back are just much more complex, much more fragile, and going to require a lot more teamwork in the hospital and inpatient. Not only have we been exacerbated by fluctuating volumes and inconsistent surges that made planning really difficult, but now as we're really confronted by a workforce challenge and we have these really difficult patients, the idea of, of team-based care and really expanding beyond your normal teams is going to be really important to deal with these really highly acute, highly fragile patients. Makes sense. So I guess what I'm hearing too is the hospital isn't going anywhere for this patient sector. At least not for the CV service line. That's probably good news for a number of our listeners. 
a similar service line where we're hearing about that inpatient setting being increasingly important is also neuro. Kate, I'm curious, what are your takes here on the neuro landscape, where you see things headed and how patients might require a new set of services in the future? The shift towards hospital outpatient ambulatory settings, it's been slower in neurosciences, right? These are patients, when you think of somebody who comes in with a stroke or a brain injury, those sorts of things, it's harder to shift them out. We're not expecting to see your ischemic strokes and your subarachnoid hemorrhages treated in a hospital outpatient setting anytime soon. On kind of a positive note, we can think about a little bit. We do have rising complexity from some of the similar things that Josh mentioned. But the other thing that's causing that rising complexity in the neurosciences is something good that we've been doing a purpose, which is about shuffling around where some of these patients are. They're staying in the inpatient setting, but maybe some things that used to be always in that tertiary quaternary academic center are now being done in the community. And the biggest example of that that I think most will be familiar with would be something like ischemic stroke, where we've seen with thrombectomy coming on board a shift from that traditional hub and spoke centered around a comprehensive center towards more of a regional approach. This is something that we've talked about in the past. What this all means is that when some of these patients shuffle around, the acuity level at that tertiary quaternary elevates the centers that may have been only primary stroke centers in the past that are doing more. They're going to become more complex. The tide rises for all ships. Likewise, on the diagnostic side, we're seeing more that is shuffling from traditional settings to the home. Think ambulatory EEG, which was adopted more during the pandemic so that we could still get those seizure patients monitored and diagnosed sooner. Home sleep's been going on for a while. Think about those sorts of things. And we're seeing a shuffle there as well as things like remote epilepsy monitoring, some of the neurodiagnostic reads that wouldn't have been able to be done in community settings are now being able to be done there. Some still staying in the hospital, some going home, but you can see here across any site of care, that acuity level that's able to be taken care of there is going to be elevated. There's a good side, right, to some of these rising complexity because it's the back side of some of the things that we're doing on purpose. Now, outpatient shift ambulatory, when we talk about musculoskeletal, that's going to be a big one there as well. And the same thing is going to happen for those reasons. So some positive and negatives there. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel too, so much of the growth, particularly for outpatient that's centered around neuro, it's a great innovation and technology story. We've just made such great strides in recent years in terms of expanding those capabilities, improving access to patients who otherwise maybe didn't have very many treatment options, which is also then driving increased demand as survivorship improves. Absolutely. When we talk about outpatient shifts in particular related to your question, I think one that can be done in the outpatient setting that's new and it's a broader option for patients that would have had kind of more limited options in the past Focused ultrasound. Now, this has been used in some other service lines before, but the first neurologic-related uses have just come about in the last couple of years. Currently, we have high-intensity focused ultrasound that can be used for essential tremor-dominant Parkinson disease, and that's something that you can do outpatient rather than some of the other advanced options like deep brain stimulation that are going to absolutely be the right choice for some patients, but it's nice to see this expanding range of options available as far as technologies that are exciting, that are assisting care. It's not all about therapeutics. Sometimes it's about how we work. When we look at some of the AI-based imaging modalities, computational imaging techniques, all these things, those are going to help us in terms of how we work. You think about stroke, we're able to extend patients out to the 24-hour window for thrombectomy in parts because we have these AI-enabled imaging paradigms that are helping us see if there's salvageable tissue. Some of the platforms that are available for that are also used to help teams communicate across sites, not just used for 
of ischemic stroke anymore to identify those large vessel occlusions. It would also be bleeds, starting to see brain tumors. So you can use that to identify patients quickly and maybe get them enrolled in clinical trials sooner. Kate, you mentioned AI-enabled imaging, and that's really what's driving some of the declines that I'm seeing in diagnostic cath. And we're seeing AI imaging as being an addition and another tool that a cardiologist can use. It's not necessarily going to replace the cardiologist. We assume that AI is going to solve all of our workforce problems. What I've been seeing is it really helps create efficiencies and kind of speeds things along, but it's likely not going to replace an actual body. As we think about what our teams are going to look like and what tools we're going to use, some of those AI-enabled tools are really great, but we need to make sure that we have a body behind them checking them. In this case, that person can be geographically very disparate from our base hospitals. It really does expand what our workforce can do, but not pin all of our hopes on AI and solving all of our workforce issues. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Josh. We've been hearing about that a little bit. And one, actually, that I didn't mention that's going to impact the CV service line as well. There are now caps and headbands and things like that that are used for seizure monitoring. Less about the traditional epilepsy monitoring unit, but more about the cardiac unit or neurocritical care where you have to be doing that continuous EEG sometimes if patients are really out and you have to be able to monitor that. But you've got to have somebody somewhere to read it. It's helpful because it can help flag things. But ultimately, within your system, you're still going to need that expertise somewhere for a lot of these patients. It's a great story. I feel like we've started with the most hospital-centric services and have worked our way through the ambulatory setting. Shifting to something that I think of as very heavily an outpatient service line is cancer. Corey, I'm curious, how is this landscape changing? What are the big stories in the cancer space this year? The interesting thing about the cancer world is, you know, things change slowly a little bit, but what really has kind of influenced where care is being delivered a lot about these new emerging therapeutics. And we know we're talking about immunotherapies and really kind of what that's done here. But when we start to think from an inpatient, outpatient standpoint, there's a lot of multiple factors that kind of impact and influence kind of how care is going to be received, how it's going to be decided with clinical pathways. Therapy has really shifted some of that as well. Not to say that COVID and some of the things that have been learned through how to treat patients has also influenced that element. We know, as you pointed out, Tori, that cancer is very much on the outpatient side. Much of the higher acute type cases are reserved for the inpatient. But when you start to think about all the different types of cancers and really how those are treated and prevented or screened for, and then really how to determine how they were being treated either prior to surgical intervention or adjuvantly after surgical intervention, these all are influencing where treatments are going to be had. The interesting thing here is we'll continue to see the physician community really try to understand how to leverage all the different therapeutics that are emerging to really treat patients in the right setting. I mentioned a little bit about immunotherapy in the sense of a neoadjuvant. Are they going to treat patients with immunotherapy or chemotherapy that may prevent some of the inpatient procedures that like lung cancer or push that potentially to a later time stage where they're not really having to have that more high acute case? It's really exciting, but it's also creating some of this influx of how are patients going to continue to be treated amongst these different types of diseases. And we forecasted that specifically with lung and some of the more higher advanced types of procedures like lung cancer, lobectomy, nomectomy, some large bowel resections for colorectal. But the influential factors here is not just about what's available, but also how are patients being screened and detected. 
Makes sense. And to that end, we've talked a lot internally about deferred care during the height of the pandemic and how that's affecting then patients down the road. How are we thinking about deferred cancer screenings that occurred at the height of the pandemic, re-engaging those patients, getting them pulled through the system? Are we expecting then a short-term increase in incidence as those conditions may have gone undiagnosed for a couple of years now? This is not a question I don't get every day. What we've heard, and I was just at ASCO a couple of weeks ago, and some of the conversations came up exactly about what this is going to do. And breast cancer is one that really stands out in this area because we know there was postponement or delayed screenings in that regard. The answer is, is it's too early to tell. We think we anticipate it's going to happen. There's going to be a higher acute number of cases or higher stage type of cases, specifically with breast, that are going to play out over the next couple of years. But it's just too early. The data is not there necessarily. We have forecasted with some anticipation of that occurring. But at the same time, I think a lot of the healthcare systems, especially the screening programs, have really advanced their approach to getting patients in rather quickly. So that was a good thing. But it's variable across the country. I'm not saying it's perfect. We've heard in some states, like in Ohio, that they just haven't seen some of the recovery that other states have. So it'll be very interesting to see. And unfortunately, we just don't have the numbers yet, but it's very much top of mind. Corey, that reminds me of a story that I had heard coming out of Cedar sinai During COVID, they weren't able to really efficiently do face-to-face with their patients, particularly around heart failure patients. These are really sick patients. These are chronic. This is a very hard disease. Often one in five patients will have an inpatient readmission 30 days after that hospital stay. So it really hits our bottom line. It creates a lot of challenges throughout the hospital. What Cedar sinai did was they were going to have to provide care for these patients, even though they weren't going to be able to come into the clinic. So they started leveraging virtual health. And they knew that they weren't necessarily going to be able to get blood draws or hook up EKGs or have people walk next door and do a CT scan right then and there. But they were still able to provide some services. And one of the unintended consequences, and Corey, I'm glad that you pointed out some of that social determinants of health, is they actually saw ethnic and racial minorities that often don't have high utilization in their clinics actually were able to utilize this virtual health a lot more, including people who are, for example, dual eligibles. Those special populations that we have a lot of challenges even before COVID, we found that some of the tools that we had to use during COVID can really make some inroads in bringing those people into our services and bringing those patients into preventative services so that they're not coming into the emergency department, that they're not having to do a 10-day stay in our inpatient beds rather than a three-day stay. Some of the interesting things that I was thinking about forecasting was where is that virtual health going to play a role? It's always going to be there. I just think that we are now going to really temper this as this is an additional touch point, an additional access point for a lot of patients. You know, Josh, that makes me think of the other side of virtual that we don't always talk about as much is how you can use it provider to provider. And it's an obvious one. And it's, I think, what people were doing to begin with. If you think about some of these kind of flagship use cases like Telestroke, I mean, they're looking at the patient, but a lot of it is physicians talking to each other to help them make decisions. What if we use that also in the community, knowing that they're going to get the brunt of a lot of this? 
when I think about neuromusculoskeletal as well, things like pain, dementia, those are some where we've been talking a little bit about the hospital, these things that are going to apply to bigger, more advanced centers. But a lot of this is going to hit the community and a lot of them are not going to be comfortable dealing with some of these higher complexity patients. I do see a real benefit to that. I know, Corey, you probably know a lot about this one from Intermountain, but things like using some of the models where you're doing education with community-based physicians, you're offering case review for some of the more complex cases. We've seen that for things like pain and other areas that are tricky, and maybe there are even some regulatory issues, things like opioids that can be really tricky for them to manage. We're going to need that. We're going to be needing to leverage the whole system of care, the whole community to build access. Yeah, Kate, in regards to that, I think you're exactly right. I think within cancer, it's such a multidisciplinary approach. Connectivity to subspecialization, those physicians that have that that expertise that in some communities they don't have that. Tumor boards really kind of play a very important part of that. Being able to share images as well as discuss really kind of therapeutic approaches across broader regional reaches is so important, specifically in cancer. As we've talked about with ortho, we're seeing some of that as well when we start to think about some of the opportunities physicians can use to leverage the virtual space to coordinate and collaborate on particular types of procedures. Obviously, not as to the extent of cancer. These spaces are extremely important and really create some opportunities to advance how care is being delivered in sites that really sometimes can't be done just because of the expertise or the the workforce capabilities. That's an interesting story, Corey, in that right now, virtual utilization for ortho is incredibly low. The thought of virtual being deployed for things outside of just post-op visits for ortho services is pretty novel and not something that we hear much about. You bring up a great point because it's a little provocative. What meets that? What makes sense? Which type of patients, which types of procedures really does this align? That's always been the experience with how this shifts or changes of how patients are treated post-surgical or just preventional-wise is how do you leverage these access points and coordination virtually? Makes a ton of sense and certainly something that we hear our members contend with on a day-to-day basis to break down those silos and start creating those connections across their system as well as other community partners. Another provocative statement as it pertains to ortho, I was part of a conversation recently where they mentioned the death of hospitals in quotes, as that pertains to ortho volumes. And given the shift to outpatient in recent years, I can't say that I'm surprised by that statement, but just thought it was incredibly bold. Corey and Kate, are we looking at the death of hospitals for orthopedic services? I'll just jump in real quickly. The reality of this is that this shift really from procedures from the inpatient to the outpatient or the ambulatory from HOPD to ASCs, it's reaching some of that peak to some point. There's a lot that has occurred over the last several years. And the reality is, is that it's going to continue to go that distance is really how patients are going to be able to have certain procedures done in those settings as more technologies, capabilities, and really the resources kind of evolve that. We're projecting that and we're really seeing kind of the smaller volumes. When we look at hip fractures specifically, those are completely shifted to a large degree and continue to do over the next decade as we forecasted. The reality is death to the hospitals, I mean, from an ortho perspective, it's pretty bold. It's a pretty strong statement. The reality is it's a lot of that's already occurred, and it will continue to start to level set some of that opportunity more on the outpatient ASC. I think this is one of the things we've been talking about specifically with elective hip fractures and specifically those procedures around where they're actually being done. And we've seen that in some of our commercial claims data specifically varies across the country as to how advanced that's kind of moved from inpatient to really the ambulatory setting, specifically 
what that's looked like in that particular type of procedure. That's kind of peaked. We're continuing to see that play out. And really that shift has reached that point where I think it's going to continue to be the standard. Yeah, it's been wild to see how quickly those elective hips went. The other surprise for that brief moment in time when some of the revision joint replacement procedures were off the inpatient only list, we were shocked to see that some of them actually did flip to hospital outpatient status. Now they're back inpatient, but it just goes to show that sometimes there are these little pockets, these surprises of things that are actually more acute than you would have thought that if we're able to flip them to hospital outpatient, maybe you won't do a revision in the ambulatory surgery center, but it just shows that people are pushing the boundaries. I know some of the leading organizations that we hear across the country have shifted their mindset to saying, rather than looking at a patient population within orthopedics and saying, could this surgical procedure or this patient potentially be able to go to an ambulatory surgery center? They're instead saying, is there anybody left who we have to exclude from an ASC? They've totally flipped their mindset there, which is aggressive, but it sort of shows us the mindset that they're in. Now, spine, sometimes you consider that sort of separate. Sometimes people think of it as ortho. Sometimes people think of it as neuro. That's one where we're seeing an active shift happening as well. Things like decompression and laminectomy, well on their way, shifting to the ambulatory surgery center. A lot of pain procedures, same way, if not even the office. And for some of that, Medicare has even added things like spinal cord stimulation, as well as cervical fusion with discectomy to the list of procedures. If you're doing it in a hospital outpatient setting, it actually requires prior authorization, which we believe might be a little bit of a nudge more to the ambulatory surgery center. Now, what won't go as much in pockets, we do see lumbar fusion cases being done in an ASC, but but that's really going to be a lot more minimal than cervical fusion, the joint-related procedures that Corey mentioned. That's one where you'll probably see it stay, mostly in a hospital-based setting. Just in the last year or so, we finally started to see that status shift towards hospital outpatient as well. Yeah, Kit, we've had some recent Vizian CDB data come out specifically around discharges and how there is that some of that variability across the country and some of the institutions that what that looks like, what percentages are moving to same-day discharges in certain areas of these type of procedures. It's really interesting to see that shift and move and really people pushing that envelope. And as we've talked with some clients, really kind of what is the five-step rules to kind of move patients through that discharge process and really how that evolves and is advanced. The other thing to acknowledge, too, is some of the variability being all about incentives. So you see markets where we've seen tremendous shifts. Think about states like Indiana, where those elective hips and even some of the heavier duty spine procedures, all of that have gone to the ASC more quickly. It's markets where you have super groups, you have a lot of independent physicians, states that their certificate of need requirements are beneficial or supportive of ASC shift, all of those things. But then you see other states where there's hardly been any movement at all. So I think as you're kind of looking at your own state, your own market, and kind of how quickly some of those are going to go if they haven't yet. There's going to be variability thinking about those physician relationships, just the climate in your state from a regulatory perspective, all of that is going to impact it. I feel like we've touched so many different assets of care delivery and demand from patient acuity to breaking down silos, the shift to virtual, that continued decanting of hospital-based volumes for select service lines but also the direct dichotomy of then we're seeing hospital-based growth for, for other service lines. How do you recommend organizations start wrapping their head around all of these different variables? How do they start to tackle this? As I'm thinking about the CV service line with a rising acuity on the inpatient side, but also growing outpatient procedures, I mentioned that we have 6% inpatient growth over the next 10 years. 
When you look at the CV hospital-based forecast, it's plus 9% over the next 10 years. So 75% of those volumes are going to be those same-day or next-day discharges through observation, those same-day procedures, etc. But everything that we've been hearing about is really unlocked and optimized by team-based care. And now, because we've utilized things like virtual. We've really understood that we have to think about reaching access and social determinants of health, maybe in ways that we haven't. That team-based care is going to be just really important, breaking down silos. Things like a pulmonary embolism response team from a perspective of this is combining pulmonologists and cardiologists and emergency room physicians, really reconceptualizing how they deliver care based on what they have at their hands, at their resources for that hospital. I would really encourage all of our service line leads and really all of our hospital leads to reach out to their physicians and say, how can we really leverage team-based care? It's unlikely that we're going to be able to hire our way out of this in the next three years. In my opinion, we're just not going to have that many physicians and nurses and PAs and echocardiographers. What can we do today with the teams that we have and meet them where they need those resources? So thinking about team-based care is really where I think that solution lies. One thing that really resonates with me is the right patient, right location component in regards to what Josh was commenting on. Making those decisions is very much about a team-based approach, having an understanding about, and it doesn't matter if it's cancer, CV, or ortho, it's like, how do you bring that team together to make a decision of where that patient, the right patient for that right type of treatment in that right location is so critical today. As being in healthcare, again, with the service line work, from my experience, is like you can build a lot of these team-based approaches and clinical pathways of how to get the patient in to the right location as well. But there's always an element out there that I think service line leaders have to really be respectful of. And I think we know it, and that's how are they incentivized to support those. There's an element there that's always being pushed. We're not unfamiliar to that as a group. The reality is make sure that you're having that conversation as well. We know that physicians and care teams want to provide the best for their patients. But there is an element that sometimes influences, well, what does right patient, right location really mean? Corey, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I was going to say all about incentives and structure to help your clinical workforce and your administrative workforce work together and do the things that we're going to need them to do. One of the things that's going to help with that as well is sort of bringing them the right data, uh, bringing them the right structures, whether it's that interdisciplinary tumor board type of model, or whether it's a group that comes together to work on things like supply cost and reducing variability in the different things that we're using for our procedures as we're looking at margin pressure. Anything you can do to help your clinicians make decisions and facilitate our ability to collaborate across clinical and administrative is going to be key to get where we're going to go. We're going to need a lot of innovation, a lot of care transformation to deal with some of these pressures that we see happening already and really escalating. Perfect. Well, this has been great. I've certainly learned a lot. Kate, Corey, Josh, thank you for joining me today. And to our listeners, I hope you can apply some of the information that we discussed and be sure to check out the Service Line Roundup and our Service Line webinar series at intel.sg2.com. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.